This podcast is now available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and more. Please leave a written review on whatever app you get this podcast from. Spoiler alert! When this podcast talks about the television series Game of Thrones, it talks in the context of the most recently aired episode. And when it talks about George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire series, it talks in the context of the most recently released book. You've been warned. Dedicated to HBO's Game of Thrones and George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire series, you're listening to Game of Thrones, Matt's audio blog. And now, here's your host, Matt Murdock. And welcome back to Game of Thrones, Matt's audio blog. This time around, we're looking at Season 6, Episode 2, entitled Home, written by Dave Hill, directed by Jeremy Pedeswa. And it just wasn't enough for me, folks. I couldn't just have just one episode with the Southwest version of A Song of Ice and Fire, Sirens. I had to have two in a row. And you need that fix, too. So we welcome back to the podcast once again the Song of Ice and Fire Siren from the South this time around at Hunt Pants on Twitter. Thanks for joining me, Holly. How are you? I'm good, Matt. Long time no talk. Long time no talk. And your partner here in crime, the Song of Ice and Fire Siren from the West... Kelly at Kelly Underfoot on Twitter can testify that this is not the way things always work out. Uh, the last time that Kelly and I tried to record episodes that were back to back, I think we went front to front instead. Right, Kelly? <laughs> You're right, Matt. We're just acrobatic in our technique. <laughs> We're a regular Cirque du Soleil podcast. We really are, folks. That's the way it goes. By the way, mattsaudioblog.com. That's where you find all of the back episodes of the podcast. You find podcast app links. If you're using a podcast app that allows you to leave a written review, please do so. The only reason I ask that is because I love to get feedback from our listeners. I love it when people disagree with me. I love it when people disagree with my guests, especially when I disagree with my guests, because that way I seem like I'm more right. At any rate, mm. just send just send in your thoughts about season six. You have until March 5th, but also by March 5th, I will include your feedback on the podcast apps in terms of your written review. And it also helps me get more noticeable, get more into the rankings of the search engines for Game of Thrones podcasts, because that's what I want to do. I want to grow this podcast here in this last month before we begin to get to season eight so that I can get lots of voices coming in here with differing opinions about what they're seeing. And it's going to be a great season. We start on April 14th. I can't believe it. It's just a couple of months away now. And I'm really enjoying the thought of savoring this last season and then hearing your thoughts about it. So please leave me a review. The more people that join in, the merrier. That's my whole point of view about this. And 
If you want to submit feedback for this particular season, season six, you have until March 5th, 2019. That's your deadline for this particular season. And I will take any feedback that you have. It's a criticism of the podcast or if it's a criticism of the television show or if it's just thoughts about the television show, send it all in to me. You do so by sending an email to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com or you tweet to Matt's G-O-T blog on Twitter. Let me spell it for you. Matt's audio blog at gmail.com. That's M-A-T-T-S audio blog at gmail.com. All one word on that Matt's audio blog. Same way with the Twitter, Matt's G-O-T blog on Twitter. In the meantime, it's a Monday episode, and if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that I like to do, analyze the music as well as the story of Game of Thrones. Being a musician, that seems to be the most natural kind of niche for me. We don't do that first on Mondays. Instead, we talk about the story. So let's get right into this, and I like to divide the story up into different little categories. It's the OCD in me. I like to do on the surface, where we're talking more about the things that are more emotional or maybe thematic, and then we talk about the three big things that happened in the episode. As we get further along in these episodes, it's harder to see how they have a big impact on the future um, or the long-term future. But there are some big character culmination moments. There are some things that you can look back at as big in retrospect as we're rewatching. And that's what we call the three big things. Then we'll get into some questions that we might have about this episode. And finally, we will get into the smaller points of the episode. And then we have our two segments that everybody loves or everybody hates. It doesn't seem to be any middle ground on this. Three words to describe the episode in three words and brothel mates. First, let's get to On the Surface. On the Surface. And On the Surface, I'm going to give the floor to Holly for her th- first thought about this particular episode. Um, it's a good episode overall and, and a lot of fun things, but there were a few emotional bits too. So um, the scene with Bran and Hodor after he sees his uh, vision of Winterfell in the past and sees his father and sees that Hodor can talk and his name was as actually Willis uh, and not Hodor. And when he comes back and asks Hodor, you know, like what happened? And, and the way he says Hodor is just like so sad and there's so much... Oh man, I just, I, I want to cry like right then, just kind of knowing like what's coming uh, in episode five. So uh, I think it also is a good testament to Christian Narn's ability to say so much with the only word he has ever had to say over six seasons of playing this character. Um, so that was one of my almost thoughts. I love that thought because I, I agree with you. Christian Narn can tell a story just with the way he says Hodor. Uh, I'm reminded of the uh, the kind of documentaries about the filming of the Lord of the Rings, actually, where uh, certain actors, it was said, would, you know, just twist one word one way or another to give Peter Jackson lots of flavors with which to choose from. And it seems clear that uh, Christian Narn, even if that wasn't his intent, um, has really mastered so many different ways to say Hodor that it really does tell part of the story. I love, I love your thinking of that. Kelly, what have you got for us? Mm, no, I totally agree that like after, of course, this season watching the whole series with Hodor and his storyline in mind changes every little Hodor we get and you kind of just treasure it and, and 
smile cry when you hear it because of all of the meaning that's imbued into it because of where it came from that we find out this season and it's bitter it's extra bittersweet right here because it's like Bran almost knows but not yet and it was very very meaningful and and extra innocent I think when you saw Hodor say it oh so sweet Ah, I, I I did love that very much. Um, uh, speaking of how people t- talked and how people like portrayed a scene, um, I did find the way uh, paying extra attention to how Cersei interacted with Tommen in this scene kind of found it kind of eerie the way she wasn't looking at him through most of the scene and then almost looking through him when she did look at him. And it's kind of this phase that Cersei goes through throughout this whole season that is just very there but not there very much internal and maybe because I've read the books like I'm just picturing all of this like Cersei inner monologue that's happening and I, I just very much saw that present in this episode when she was talking to Tommen and it was like she was talking to a, a ghost which is kind of I think what was bleeding through a little bit in my last like interpretation of Cersei in the last episode of her like just totally giving up on her children and her her only child that is left because she's totally given into this prophecy that's uh, been foretold to her that either is coming true because of her, you know, fulfillment of, pro- you know, self-fulfilling prophecy that she's accomplishing at this point or how the uh, uh, her fate is unfolding and she's just accepting it. But either way, yeah, just like Cersei's mannerisms here are very different and, and captivating and continues through the rest of the season and i liked it well holly back to your first point uh about hodor um that entire scene means a lot to me or that whole whole entire sequence from a lot of aspects not just the flashback itself but also what's happening at the tree um with mira outside brooding and and brands kind of questioning why she would be brooding well she has lost her brother and here's here's the thing for me as, as far as mira goes um, she's one of the most tragic characters in the series, even though her part is very small. But she gives up everything to save Bran, and then she ends up losing the thing that she's given up everything for. And that, to me, is is just completely tragic. And uh, this is the beginning of all of that. You know, she's she's still obviously thinking about Jojen, no matter how long it seems to have been, um, you know, between the last time we saw Bran, which was a full season before where he was completely absent. Um, the passage of time is weird in the Westeros world, as we all know. So it's hard to say how long it's been, but obviously she says, all I see is you having these visions and, and, Nothing else is happening. And to me, that's her questioning, why did I allow my brother to die? What did I allow my brother to die for? Um, and it's not really so much a resentment of Brand at that point, I don't think. But then to go through all that they go through, like in episode five coming up, and then finally in season seven for him to just not even be the same person, it, it must absolutely by that point feel to Mira like my whole life has just been destroyed for nothing and I think she's already feeling like it's for nothing here because she can't see what the long-term goal is she's not in that kind of loop but it just really tugged at my heartstrings this time regarding Mira 
Oh, definitely. And this is, um, you know, not to pull from the book, but like in here in the show, even she's just a very much an, a character of action. And she was always just kind of the, the defender, the um, protector of Jojen. And then he, he dies and she's kind of failed. And we've had a lot of characters, I feel like, that are tragic in that way. And when you started talking, I was kind of thinking, well, you know, like, what about, you know, all of these other characters who, who died or failing to protect their hero, their love, their everything in this show? And, and they kind of fall into that same category. However, like you were saying with Mira, she kind of has a little bit more embedded into this brand character who we've had from the beginning. So there is more to her character for us in that way, like the protector of the, the character who opens the show. Right. And to have him and lose him, but he's still there is, is almost like more painful for sure. I can see that. And yeah. it starts here and she can't as a character of action, like never understanding like the, this like, like all knowing, you know, this uh, knowledge that, uh, Jojen had and kind of like passing that on to Bran this blind trust that she has to kind of put into them is a little bit difficult for her because she's such a character of action and wants to go and she's like we're not going to win this war from inside the tree and that's just her perception of the world and having to like let go of that actually makes her even more of a heroic character because she doesn't believe in it she doesn't understand it but she believes in the person who's telling her that this is the path we need to follow and that's beautiful for her but tragic because it doesn't come to anything yet (laughs) right right and who knows if Mira will ever see the fruits of what she sacrificed for and that's to me is even more tragic so um, I, I I just feel uh, yeah, it just gets me. So Holly, how about another point from you? Um, so, you know, yay, John is back. Um, even though we kind of talked about it in our last episode a little bit, how we all, you know, weren't really that surprised that he was coming back. I still just think about when I watched this episode for the first time, how joyful I was when it finally happened. I was like standing up, running around my living room, like yelling and cheering. I was still very excited, even though like in my heart, I knew it was happening. It was just like confirmation. Yay. Um, So that was, that was just fun little reminder watching this again, how it felt. So, you know, finally, finally, after five years um, of waiting, wait, see, yeah, five years of after reading A Dance of Dragons, like waiting to see what happens. And finally getting that answer. It was exciting and thrilling. Nice. Very good. <laughs> How'd you feel about it, Kelly? Oh, I am just have so many like questions and I don't understand how like like you were like Holly you were we were talking and it's like, yeah, the the John coming back thing, like <laughs> compared to how Barrett came back. I, I read your note and I, I have to agree, it's very different <laughs> from how we understood Barrett came back. And I, I don't understand that difference. Like there was like a full ritual that went on around John and um, nothing happened. And then everyone leaves except for Ghost. And then he wakes up. I don't know. We can talk about this in questions if anyone wants to, to save it for there. But uh, I was, yeah, I just kind of forgot to mention it. I had in the notes that, um, just like some differences when we see Thoros, you know, just pre- in, back in season three. He just like pray after the hound takes him out. He just prays over Beric, and all of a sudden, you know, he's there. But like with Melisandre, it's like this mm. whole thing, this whole to do. He washes, she washes him, washes his hair, you know, cleans all his wounds, cleans his body, gives him a little haircut. He gets the full spa treatment for his resurrection, 
mm-hmm. um, uh, this time around. And maybe maybe that's her doing it by the book and um, Thoros can, you know, take the shortcut and they both have the same result. So I guess it doesn't really matter as long as it works, right? <laughs> exactly. Okay, so I have uh, one other thing from the north, not north of the wall, but uh, somewhat of the north, and and that is about Theon. Actually, I have a couple of different things, but uh, the first one is about Theon uh, on an emotional side. For me, uh, when I finally came back and started watching the series again, this is the episode where I actually kind of gave in and completely forgave Theon. I could not bring myself to completely I could bring myself to feel bad for him but I couldn't forgive him until this when his conversation with Sansa where he talked you know he owned up to everything that he did not as Reek who was beaten into saying so but more as Theon who had acknowledged everything that he had done and that that was the point where I was just kind of like okay Theon, well, you obviously paid the penance with your time with Ramsay, so now I can forgive you because you've completely owned up and you're you're going to go home and you're going to face... He, he's just lining up everything that he needs to apologize for. He, his next mission is to go and apologize to Yara for, you know, putting her in the situation that he put her in. Not just at the Dreadford when she tried to come and save him, but also at Winterfell when she tried to save him then and he refused. And uh, this this was the moment not unaided by Ramin Javadi's score, I will add. But this this was the moment where I, I just kind of just said, man, okay, you get a pass. You're good. Uh, and Theon still has a lot of things to own up to, obviously. And he's going to make more mistakes. He's kind of, I, I call it a reclapse. That's what I call it. Uh, he has reclapses where he just cowers in fear because he's, you know, the trauma that's been placed upon him is incredibly terrible. And uh, so he, he does fail his sister again. And, and he does do things that he shouldn't do. But this was the point where it was just kind of like, okay, the slate is even. What you do from here on, um, will judge as to whether it's a, a result of Ramsey or just a result of you being a jerk. And I haven't seen a single thing since this moment where I've seen Theon uh, be a jerk for his own self. It's more just the, again, the reclapse. Oh, and it's, it's so realistic, right? And, and that's what yeah. I love about this show. It's, it's, it's honest, it's brutal. It's, it, yeah, I think that's a realistic portrayal of trauma and, and, how someone can change because of that and, and be stronger because of it. And it's just a very honest portrayal of, of somebody changing and also dealing with trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What else do we have here on the surface? I have just um, a carryover note from the last episode. We kind of talked about the, the Cersei opening shots. Um, and I know we kind of mentioned that she's like staring at the Sept of Baylor. And I think that was actually in this episode um, in her second uh, opening shot we have with Cersei instead of um, the first time when she tries to leave the Red Keep. And this one, it's the one right before Tom comes to visit her. And I was kind of following through and trying to think, what did I think? What was I thinking about when I saw that? So I followed 
in the the first shot of Cersei this season, she's just kind of reading the letter. And like we kind of talked about, she's kind of touching her hair. And then in the second shot we have, it's again, Cersei just by herself in her chamber. And this time she's kind of pulling on the thread of her gown and in, by herself. And then in the next shot we have of Cersei again alone in her, her chambers. And she's act, this is where she's staring at the sept and um, holding her necklace that matches Marcella's necklace, which she later puts down in the scene. And she's actually, her neck is bare at this point, which kind of looks like she just took the necklace off. And this is kind of what makes me think of like, she's totally just given into the fact that all of her children will die. And she believes this prophecy that they are all doomed and just putting them aside and moving forward with her life in this horror that she believes world to be and all of that. So I'm just, I'm enjoying really watching the the rewatch for, with, with these little thoughts in mind of like, why, why are all of Cersei's shots framed with her opening by herself? And what is she thinking? And, Obviously, knowing what this leads up to, it's it's kind of titillating and exciting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, the funny thing is, is that uh, I I was more intrigued by you talking about the pulling the thread from her gown because I've always, when I've seen that, have seen that as kind of a metaphor of her unraveling. Yeah, or like. Um you know, the world around her unraveling and it just being all chaos and her giving into that theory or it can really be interpreted a lot of ways. So I don't know the fact that she's the one unraveling it makes it a little bit, I don't know, a little bit more horrible with the fact that she's unraveling herself, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's exactly the metaphor that I thought it was. Oh, a little bit. I can see that. Oh, the writers. That's a good one. I like that. Yeah. Well, uh, I've got one last one. And speaking of Cersei, I just really felt terrible for for Tommen in this particular episode, especially at the Sept, um, when he starts vocalizing all the guilt that he's been harboring uh, in regards to not being able to do anything about Marjorie, not being able to do anything about his mother. And I did enjoy um, Jamie acting like he's being in the role of the advisor, but really saying things that I think a father would say um, that kind of got me this time. Cause I think that Jamie is given the loss of Joffrey, given the loss, especially of Marcella and the experience that he had with her right before. I think Jamie is trying, he may not be succeeding, uh, but I, I think Jamie's really trying to at least be some kind of a father to Tommen. Um, until the point where Tommen lets the faith kick him out, at least. Oh, and and you have to keep in mind that he has, like, repressed any, like, fatherly instincts for 15, 16, 18 years, you know? And this is the first time he's actually trying to, like, tap into them. And it's just absolutely adorable, him, him floundering to try to be both advisor and father and you know lover to Cersei through their their son and yeah he he's trying I definitely agree and he I think he does a good job well I like his I like his advice for sure absolutely mm-hmm. three, three big things so as far as the three big things go we like to talk about the things that we feel were the most impactful as far as part of the episode goes. Well, gee, I'm pretty sure that pretty much everybody's going to have one big thing that is the same, uh, if nothing else. 
who wants who wants to reveal the surprise big thing? Kelly? Oh yes. Well, all of my things this episode I had to punctuate with a gasp because that's <laughs> the noise that I make when it's revealed and that of course is sarcastic in this case because it was gasp John is alive and <laughs> who, who knew that would happen and of course uh, I think it was cool the way it played out I think it was cool that they waited until the end of the second episode um, kind of giving us you know I don't know what the opposite of like I don't know <laughs> bated breath we were all waiting with is and then it comes out with a gasp but yes we we finally got that uh, payoff and it was glorious and interesting and I, I, I I'm very glad that the the anticipation has ended. <laughs> uh, my only thought about it was that it, um, it did kind of have uh, we didn't get the payoff of it re- restoring Mel's like power or like any belief that she has in her faith, which we kind of see play out through into season seven and. Um, I think immediately in this season, we do see that John has decided, you know what, this fulfills the vow and I'm out. And I don't know if he ever says it explicitly, but that is very much the implied um, attitude he has. But those are the two kind of like things that play play forward through this one action. And of course, everything that John does after that being alive now. But I mean, (laughs) character wise, we knew he was going to come back. Right. And And I think from a just, just a dramatic standpoint, I thought that this played out beautifully. Um, like you said, waiting till the end of the episode, the long drawn out ceremony, nothing happening, everybody walking away. And then just the lone shot with John waking up. Uh, that was to me beautifully done. Uh, I know that a lot of people thought, well, it's, it's a long way to something that we were all figuring since he's still in the filming scenes, but just that one shot of, her of Melisandre standing over him and nothing happening and the expression on her face everything about that was um, beautifully done but I'll probably talk more about that in tidbits mm-hmm. um, no it, the and it, no I totally agree and I think when you were saying that I was kind of thinking like every all of the characters leaving and this just being a moment for the audience who has invested so much in this character so it's just between us and John in that room and he's back and that was like a little gift from the writers to us. And I think having all the characters leave in that moment actually played that out perfectly for the audience. I agree completely. Uh, Holly, do you have any thought on John taking a breath? Yeah, but I'm going to go in a little bit different direction. So this time around, I started wondering like why it was Davos's idea for John to be resurrected. Um, it's not, you know, we all kind of knew he was going to come back, but would you have guessed that it would have been because of Davos that we should be thanking Davos for it? I don't know. I just thought that was really kind of strange. And maybe because in the book, we presume his resurrection is going to come about differently. And, and maybe there's just nobody to advocate for this in the show, but it still just seemed a little bit weird to me. I have a hard time understanding where he gets this idea from, you know, like, cause bringing people back from the dead is not really a thing that happens in this world. Um, I mean, I guess you could make some arguments for the mountain, but even then he wasn't quite dead already before you <laughs> kind of got to him. So that's um, not really the same type of process. And, and as far as we know, Melisandre is the only one that knows about 
Thoros and Varric, like she didn't just share that information. So why does Davos even like where does he come up with this idea? And and why John, you know? Um, why not Stannis? And you know, Stannis isn't around and presumably, <laughs> you know, anything could happen to his body by now, but if it's still like where it is, it's probably still preserved and cold. I don't know. Um, so I just thought, I don't know. I started thinking about this last night and it was it was really bugging me. I thought there was some obvious answer that I was missing um, other than like, oh, well, the writers just needed somebody to tell Mel to bring him back. And that's and Davos was this person. But I don't know. What do you guys think? Oh, no, I, I definitely thought it was a very... Um a writer's tool, which is, um, you have, uh, Brienne, who is very much like a writer's like wild card. They get to just use this character that everybody loves to do whatever they want and it will accomplish whatever narrative goal they want. And because everyone loves that character, you don't really question it, but Holly's too smart for you. And you try that with Davos and Holly's like, wait a second, (laughs) give me two years and I will think about that more closely. (laughs) Right. Definitely. It's, it's, um, I think they did as good of a job as they could with it because they, he is the last character you would think to go to Melisandre besides obviously after season seven of Varys, who might be the last character you would think of to go to Melisandre for help with magic. But you would think, why wouldn't he have gone to her for Stannis? And maybe his body wasn't there in front of her and in front of them and, and available for that, um, option. But it doesn't seem super like linear, his train of thought, but that was what they had him do. And, and he did it really well. And they did it with kind of almost an amount of irony that you wouldn't have expected because he's been so anti Melisandre, so anti her, her tactics and her methods that him being the one to go to her to do this meant more to her than if anyone else had like asked her to do magic. Like everyone has selfish wants for magic, but Davos being so against her for these tactics that him coming to her for, for this, um, act and believing in her meant that much more and I mean, kind of pulled her out of this doubt and and questioning of faith and it, it kind of worked that way but that kind of like was a little bit of hand waving that like distracted me from the fact of like yeah why didn't he do that for Stannis <laughs> very good very good now in the last podcast Kelly you asked all of us who were going to complain about little things uh, you know, the, why why this character, why that character, whatever, yes. little yes, plot holes. You asked us to use our imaginations to to expend some energy towards this. So I've made <laughs> I've I've made the effort in this particular case. Yeah, now, as Matt. Maybe Melisandre didn't say anything to Davos before, but maybe she did say something to Stannis before off screen. Maybe Stannis then said something to Davos off screen about this racky thing when they were bringing Gendry back that she found out that this Beric Dondarrion just kept living. Stannis would have heard of Beric Dondarrion and he'd be like, I don't understand how that guy keeps coming back. She said he keeps coming back. I don't know what's going on. And Davos hears about this. Now, Melisandre seems very distant, very despondent. And so... Davos suddenly realizes that he has to prod her. Now, what is Davos' interest in Jon Snow? Well, Stannis saw something in Jon Snow, just as Davos told him in season five. The bo- the king sees, Stannis sees something in you. He wants you to come with him to Winterfell. Mm-hmm. So all of this comes together to explain exactly why Davos would want to bring Jon Snow back to life. Mm-hmm. And let me piggyback there. Uh, Davos adored Shireen and he knew that if 
Alessandro had burned Shireen, it was only with Stannis's blessing. And therefore, maybe he lost some of his um, blind faith in Stannis and his, his um, devoutness to Stannis because he made that choice. And well, therefore... He didn't okay, I don't yet. think I'd go that far because Davos seems pretty darn shocked when he finds his uh, Yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't have that information yet. So and that just and that just kind of belabors like my or I don't he know. was suspicious. But that that <laughs> makes my point a little bit more valid. Is like he's so okay before this, like in the previous scene with Davos and Nightwatch and Tormund, they're like ready to burn John's body, but now all of a sudden he's like going to metal about like why isn't he still upset about Shireen? You know, like. I don't know. <laughs> uh, come on, like you're you just lost your your basically your 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 daughter, you know, the character you love like a daughter and but you're worried about bringing this guy who you do like, you know, I mean, I'm not arguing why he would, you know, or him being behind John, I'm not arguing any of that. Like for sure Davos respects and likes John. Right. It's is weird. And yeah, I think it might just come down to corpse availability at this point. Yes. So. <laughs> And Matt, to your point, I don't see Stannis as a gossip, so I don't think, um, I don't really, I, I can't imagine this off-screen uh, conversation between Stannis and Davos about somebody else bringing people back from the dead. Mm, I, I, have, I have no room for naysayers on this podcast. <laughs> I, I could picture Melisandre like, at dinner one night when they're talking about how, oh, do you recall when they were storming? Uh, back when Stannis was holding the castle for his brother and we had to eat rats and oh do you remember all of that and they're all just eating nicely and then Melisandre's like oh interesting note this thing in my religion uh, became apparent to me and I've learned that this is possible isn't that interesting that the Lord of Light works so strongly in those around us perhaps that is something that my Lord would like to use in the future and I can study on that and she's like saying it to Stannis but like pointedly looking at Davos like I'm so powerful, and my Lord of Light does this stuff. <laughs> well, here's the the problem that I have with that, Kelly, is the fact that Davos is very direct. He would have said, "You at one time said that there are people who can be brought back from the dead." Um, so that's the problem I have with that. That's why I go with the with the second with the uh, you know the Westerosi phone call theory. Mm, no, no, that's true. The dialogue does not support my theory. He did ask it as if he had never heard of it. Dang, something. <laughs> been more Something. random like does any way you can just bring this guy back and it's just strange anyway we don't have to <laughs> we don't have to I beat know. this too much it is a small minor thing and i think y'all are right it's just like some writer hand waving it away and and it, it was subtle to you know not affect me until now um so. <laughs> and it was clever to use davos in in as the character who would very likely be the most anti of Melisandre's methods. Uh, yeah. But they, yes, you're right. They did kind of have a bit of a, a hill to climb to, to over for have, to have all of us overlook that little fact. <laughs> well, and let's not forget that there is one other thing that happened in the prior episode. And that is that when Davos, uh, Melisandre saw John, she said, I saw him at Winterfell. Maybe this is something that stuck in Davos's mind, because um, he said, oh, "Well, I don't know about in the flames or whatever, but he's gone now." Um, and maybe he got to thinking about that conversation. And he thought, "Well, if she saw him in the flames, she's seen other things in the flames, and that's worked out." Hmm. 
But, Maybe it was just one of those things. But they also haven't because she says she saw Stannis at Winterfell and that, like, you know, climbing the battlements, winning that battle. And that's clearly the last thing that did not come true or happen. So, <laughs> yeah. But I think there is also an aspect of this being like super desperate. They all just mentioned how, wow, it's a sad day when Dolores Ed is our last hope. Uh, <laughs> well, okay. And- yeah, fair enough. And he's like, well, we could try this other thing. And what can she do? I don't know, magic? Let's see what kind of magic she can do. And that that one thing could have led to another in his mind. And he's a very clever man. So he might have thought that if this were possible, if, if this were possible in the world, this lady might be able to do it. <laughs> You've all given thoughts on Jon Snow? <laughs> yes. Are there any more thoughts on Jon Snow before we move on to our next big things? John Mallor Davos. I think that's all kind of encompassed and concluded. Very good. Kelly, what else do you have? Well, we touched on it a bit, and it was that uh, Bran going back to a time in, in uh, green scene back into the past, which we hadn't seen before, and, and experiencing life at Winterfell and looking around and seeing how happy everyone was. And this was my <gasps> Hodor speaks, and I gasp moment and uh but also the implication of everything else that that experience um could imply for brand's power and what it obviously comes out to foretell throughout the rest of the season and perhaps series and and what this this trait will will come to be for uh the story uh and it kind of starts here excellent but also i loved i loved liana i loved seeing liana so that's (laughs) i gotta throw it in here (laughs) Right on. Understood. Holly, do you have any thought on that? Uh, I have some stuff about Bran. Uh, I guess I can talk about. Uh, this is what I was going to say earlier. The, so this season is like the first one that people stop complaining about Bran being boring, finally. I never thought Bran was boring, personally. And it usually annoyed me when people would say that. We, we start realizing how important he is. So um, aside from the scene with like Littlefinger and Sansa in the crypt from season five, there's been no other mention of Lyanna since season one, episode two. Um, and the writers are finally able this season to start to slowly build up to that R plus Ally Shea theory uh, from here until the end of season seven, where we kind of know that that's where John comes from, but we get that confirmation that John is the actual legitimate heir to the throne. Um, I thought that was interesting. Um, also from Bran, from here on out, we get like the Night King origin story through him. And without him, we wouldn't have so many fun theories to think about. Um, like, is Bran Night King? Or did Bran somehow warg into the Mad King with the whole burn them all thing? Meaning, like, uh. Uh, no, I know you're going to love these. But I'm just saying, you know, before Bran was boring and now we get, is Bran all the brands? Or... You know, one that's, I think, pretty kind of legitimate is like, will Bran warg a dragon? And, or can he warg an undead dragon, perhaps? So, um, yeah, so we finally get some cool things with Bran, um, and he's not boring at all. See? Yep. <laughs> Told you so. Told you so, folks. Yep. Just wait. Never underestimate a character's utility. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, I'll, I'll list one of my three big things here. Uh, Ramsey, he's taking charge of Winterfell by killing Roos. Um, Roos is the last character that you would expect to die um, just, you know, in the arms of his son. 
more or less. And the way that, uh, of course, that Ramsey dispenses with Walda and the baby, that was horrific and, and uh, shows Ramsey's true nature. But just Ramsey becoming the new Lord of Winterfell. And it, it, it seems that uh, Karstark here, at least, the, the son of Rickard Karstark, who is there also to witness it, um, isn't against this. It's not like he moves against him uh, once that happens. He, he's totally cool with it. Uh, and I, I, it just makes me wonder, and I'm not really asking this as a question. I, I'm just saying it, it feels like that um, Karstark had the hindsight or the, the foresight, actually, to once he heard Ramsay say something well with the, the Karstarks and, and the Manderleys and the Umbers or, or the Karstarks and the Umbers, we don't need anybody else. And Karstark's thinking, oh, yeah, more power for me. So he doesn't really care what happens as long as the guy that is in charge is going to possibly give him more power, right? Oh, yeah. And now that the guy who is in charge has, he like, just seconds earlier proposed a plan that would turn the rest of the North against them, and he would be a very strong, the Karstarks would be a very strong ally, and he would need the Karstarks that much more. Like, hey, why not? <laughs> yeah. Like, this guy, he's crazy, but this might work out for me and my yeah. family, my house. Mm-hmm. Sure, we'll help you out if, you know, there's always those uh, little payment options. <laughs> this works for me. <laughs> Car Stark says. No, he he didn't even bat an eye at all. And and that that was one of my gasp moments was when Ramsey uh, uh killed his dad. Um uh, do you mind if I explain a little bit? Sure. No, oh yeah. So it was just a little bit of the 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 way in which he killed him um triggered something in my my uh deep memory of, of this show and I had to like look it up and see if anyone else and of course a million other people had already thought of this but it was very reminiscent of the way in which Roos killed Rob at the Red Wedding just a hug and then a stab and then you're like all, you know the camera's just focused on you know waist up close proximity of these two guys and you don't immediately know what happens you just get the facial reaction and even in that um in this moment you don't know who stabbed whom just yet. And then you realize, um, of course, if you saw as they were going in for, as Ramsey was going in for the hug, he had a very blatant knife, you know, um, in his belt loop. It was very sinister from the, from the beginning, but the way that, that, that played out reminded me of that scene. So I, I looked it up and of course, there's all of this analysis of how Roos pretty much like dug his own grave by doing all of these like, traitorous behaviors and, and, and acts, you know, killing his, um, his, his king is very similar to killing your father, like kinslaying and kingslaying. And Ramsey does this exact thing to Roos. And then you have uh, the way that he killed him. And then you have how he also killed his wife and child. Um, Roos also did that to Rob at the Red Wedding. So there's a lot of this parallel that comes back to, to kind of bite Roos in a bit of a, you know, karmically satisfying way <laughs> horrific horrific of course but for it to happen to Roos, eh, you know I, I love that like right before he dies like the, or you know they find out that you know Walda had the baby uh the last thing he says Roos says to Ramsey is if you acquire a reputation as a mad dog you'll be treated as a mad dog it's like okay Roos, yes. tell us 
Tell us more about how good you are at raising your own pup. Or like, oh, wait, you can't. You're dead. Bye, oh, Matt. No. Yeah. And in the last episode, there was a bit of foreshadowing in, in how, you know, uh, Roos was very much chiding Ramsey. And then in this episode, like right before this, you know, he just reminded him, like, I was a bastard as well. And then he just kind of ignores him very much like treating your son like a dog while well, he's going to act like a dog. And then vice versa <laughs> he's like straight up goading him a little bit and you know he had it coming <laughs> oh yeah Bruce, Bruce has had it coming since season three so that, that it's it seems it almost to me seems unjust that it was ramsey that got to do it it would be if it wasn't like it, it's just so horrific for Bruce. Like obviously, any of his enemies killing him, he might have seen seen as like, while I had this coming, I w- I wasn't smart enough or cunning enough to plan ahead of this or protect ahead of this, and and yet it coming from within his own house, just that much sweeter of an irony for in in Roos's eyes. <laughs> Very good. But we got we get it. We get some satisfaction later with with Sansa's uh, vengeance. That's true. Very very true. And you know, Matt, I have to mention that hearing all of those. Oh no, <laughs> uh, folks! I don't know what the episodes are in Podcast Winterfell, but please go to podcastwinterfell.com dot com and uh, find the episodes uh, that she's about uh, regarding the subject that she's about to talk about, and therefore you will definitely uh, have some uh, more fodder as you hear me try to portray uh, Reek. <laughs> See, you were just tapping into your empathy from that early on, Matt. You knew, you knew it was coming, and you were just trying to see his his way of the world. <laughs> to be perfectly honest, I I don't think that I had watched this episode before we did those no, dreaded you podcasts. You were preparing, and you were ready when the episode came. <laughs> well, okay, so release it on the world. What you think about Wait. this and how okay. what it proves? Oh, just. The glory of hearing all of these names mentioned and like I could just bow down and, and hug these the writers for throwing these names in. They were throw offs. They were unnecessary, but they mentioned them anyway. And it's canon and it's beautiful. And it's the Karstarks, the Umbers and the Manderleys. I mean, names we've, we've heard a little bit, but like, I mean, not since season two or three, the Umbers and, and, all, and like the Karstarks. I mean, I'm sure many people had to like, were grateful for the uh, <laughs> the backstory that, that the Karstark character had to give just now about, I didn't care for Rob ever since he cut my father's head off. Like very, you know, direct <laughs> reminder to the audience as to who this guy is. But the Manderleys, like nobody's heard of these people, so... I love that they threw these names in. These are all characters from the GNC, the Grand Northern Conspiracy, that takes place at Winterfell, where we are currently in this episode. And it's all about who is loyal to the Boltons. And it's it's, it's tiny, and they're obviously not p- playing into any more of, of this than, than in this little moment. But I, I adored that they paid homage to, to this huge theory that I uh, I did a lot of research and, and effort on, not necessarily that I'm like tying my horse to, but I, I did a lot of work on it and I enjoyed it. And it's great that, you know, the writers who do a lot of work themselves, you know, put a little effort into paying homage to, you know, those of us who put a lot of effort in for no pay. <laughs> now, my question to you is this, by lumping the Umbers and the Karstarks with the Manderleys, how does that tribute to the GNC? Now, the Manderleys, I get being a tribute to the GNC. Except not. But the, <laughs> but the Karstark and the Umbers, 
are both loyal to the Boltons, even in the GS, GNC theory. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why Ramsey says that we have them, that they are allied to us against the rest of the North. We don't need anyone else. The Manderleys is questionable because the Manderleys were killed at like um, at the Red Wedding. So like in the show. So it doesn't actually make sense that the Manderley family would be with them in the show at this point. But, okay. you know. <laughs> All right. Just asking. Just asking the question. Uh, folks. It's a long, I think, three or four podcast series. At least four. That's spread spread out over a couple of years because it took her and John forever to to get things together sometimes. Herding cats. It was great. Uh, But uh, we did did have a lot of fun doing them. So go to podcastwinterfell.com or just Google Podcast Winterfell Grand Northern Conspiracy and go have fun, folks. Go have fun. Hunker down. It's good. It's good times. Yeah. Hunk, <laughs> hunker down. You, you'll you'll be you'll be involved with all of that stuff until season eight comes around. It'll you know. keep you warm at night. That's right. Until <laughs> until we get the final season. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Matt, for indulging me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We had to indulge you, and you did a fantastic job with those podcasts. I really enjoyed them. Uh, you and John did a really good job putting all of that together, and I know that you did most of the research, and and John. Uh, I made him lead it because uh, I yeah, really it was, didn't. Yeah, it was his brainchild for sure. But then I'm I'm overpowering and zealous, so it became <laughs> exactly. My, well, well, you both you, you you're both of your guys is you you birthed a baby that will forever be in the world, and I love that. Me too. <laughs> All right, uh, we're down to our final three things, or our final yeah, final of our three things. Uh, Holly, you got one for us. Uh, yeah, it's just going to be kind of rehashing both stuff we talked about earlier on this podcast and the previous one, but just kind of that growing distance between Cersei and the rest of her family from this point on. Interesting that Tommen believes that Cersei is the one that's behind Tristane's murder and has you know no idea about who actually is, um, but he just assumes because he knows his mom. You know, he knows what she's capable of, and she probably would have done it had the Sand Snakes not got there first. And then also, you know, there's kind of some distance between Jamie and Cersei, but also Jamie isn't really connecting very well with Tommen, at least not as well as with Marcella. I think you kind of touched on that earlier. And then, like Kelly was saying earlier about that scene with, you know, where Cersei's basically looking at him like a ghost. Um, yeah, I, I'm just kind of more on that. He just, I agree, basically. Um, he mm-hmm. apologizes, but she's just like, okay, yeah. And you, you can tell you know, she hugs him, but it's not, you know, it's not the same from here on out between, you know, Cersei and the rest of her kin about what's going on. She's she's just too busy staring at the sept and and thinking about what's to come. And I noticed that more since you mentioned it. I kind of like looked a little bit at this episode again today before we recorded and I'm like, oh, there she is just standing there looking out at the sept. Um, <laughs> yeah, now I'm going to only see that. So. heck heck yeah no that's good like all of our like random thoughts about that was weird that's a good point like putting it all together in this like concept that she's definitely distancing herself or feels distant from and is acting that way from her family that's exactly what how i word that that's a good point (laughs) excellent uh i have one final big thing here and that is that the war of the five king officially ends 
in this episode. Here we thought it was over a long time ago. No, it's not really officially over until the last of the Ironborn get killed at Deepwood Mott. That's the last Ironborn stronghold, as Yara calls it, uh, in inland, anywhere on Westeros. And, of course, we have the death of Balon as well. And he was the last king involved in the War of the Five Kings. Uh, I've often said that all of the kings have to die before this war is over because you never know what a king's going to do. And uh, this seals the deal. Plus, this starts to introduce the character of Euron Greyjoy. Euron, I am the Storm Greyjoy, um, who seems really crazy and really scary in this particular episode to me. Yeah, I mean, like seeing him on the bridge, I'm obviously thinking of like, you know, the the cloaked stranger um, in Winterfell in all of the books. And I'm just thinking like, this guy is going to be awesome. And of course, he takes his hood off. And yeah, he is awesome. <laughs> I thought it was great. Totally cool to meet Euron in this in this manner. Very random. I mean, season six and we're still meeting new characters. That's awesome. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, absolutely. And And somebody who's from the books, somebody that we can identify with from from the books. He's not exactly a, a, an exact portrayal of the Euron that I that I see in the books, but to me, he's kind of like this uh, amalgam of or this combination of the Victorian character and the Euron character, which makes him even that much more scary <laughs> to me. Yeah. Potential, uh, yeah, the potential for for crazy in that in that combination is very high. <laughs> <laughs> very, very high, very high. Euron doesn't work for me as well as he works for you guys or most of the fandom. I don't, I, I, I don't know. I, I can't really describe it. I just, this is good because this is a mysterious scene. We don't know really who he is, and he comes and does his thing. And like this scene is cool, but all of his stuff in seven, I'm not, just <laughs> not really a fan of. He's, he's just kind of like a gross douche i don't know <laughs> no 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 for for sure this this episode is euron's high point <laughs> okay um i totally agree he's like a, a brawn wannabe but not as cool like a jamie wannabe but not as awesome like he's 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 not <laughs> i feel bad for him because he does come in at season six and again introducing characters at season six it's an awesome attempt but it doesn't they need to be super unique, and he's not. He's kind of like a Dario, but not as, like, exotic. I don't know. He's just, yeah. <laughs> he's almost, he's just pretty much not quite anything that he's trying to be. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, and I, I don't know. Maybe it's my opinion is too informed by Book Huron, who is legit terrifying to me, and especially if you – read some of the the TWOW preview chapter and find out more things about him. That is one sick, dark dude for sure. Uh, and this one, he's just, and in the show, he's just kind of like a, a caricature. Like they were trying to find like a, a silly balance for like a, like they wanted, they still want more fun, like villainous characters, I guess, like, like Joffrey and, you know, Ramsey to an extent. And I don't know, they, I think they went too far in the him trying to be funny in the show for me, and he just yeah. does not work for me at all. They they try to present him as as like scary in this um, episode, and even Balin like is talking about how like he cut out the tongues of everyone on his ship, and 
like that story should be horrifying, but it kind of comes across as like comedic or, or sardonic even just kind of a little bit psychotic, but like we don't have any context for it. So it doesn't have the impact that I think they're, they're going for. And then, yeah, like he's pretty much just trying to portray this enigmatic character, but he really just kind of comes across as like, like a court jester. I don't know. (laughs) It's not great. No, especially when we get to that scene in, um, what is it? Is it the last episode of season seven where they're all together in King's Landing and, you know, they're about to have this meeting and he's just like, oh, Theon, I have your sister. And everybody's looking at him like, dude, what the hell are you doing? Like, is this really the time? And I don't know. It kind of just, it was kind of funny, but it also just weakens (laughs) his character for me too. I don't know. Yes, he's like he's like the the greenery on your plate that you're like, why is this here? This is kind of wasteful, and it, I guess it fills out the plate, but it really doesn't add anything to it. <laughs> it's about presentation, people. It's about yes. presentation. <laughs> <laughs> With that, why don't we present some questions? Questions. And I see that we all have at least one question. Why don't we start with you, uh, Kelly? Yeah, I have uh, always paid attention to like, what are these characters trying to convey with their facial expressions? And it's always up to interpretation. So in this episode, we had Jamie um, interacting with the High Sparrow in the Sept. And the High Sparrow is always enigmatic. I know I use that word a lot, but in this, this character actually is that to me. And I don't, I don't know where to put him. I mean, he, when I went in this, um, in this dialogue, I actually realized that the, I don't, we don't have his name. And, you know, this is um, kind of a weird thing for a character in this world to not have a name. He just is the high sparrow. And all of his little uh, sparrows come up around him. And he kind of has a little bit of strength in that moment. But he still isn't, you know, isn't sure that Jamie's not going to kill him. And he has this smirk at the end when he sees that Jamie isn't going to kill him and I don't know if that smirk is like ha my line about you know all of us being weak and and individually but together we can bring down an empire that line sure gotcha and then he walks away or if it's something more um like relief or something more like sincere in in like that human kind of a reaction what did you guys think I thought the smirk was about see I got all these guys so I'm okay yeah okay (laughs) Holly, what do you think? Weird flex, but okay, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair enough. Fair enough. I don't know. Sometimes I, I just maybe it's the actor. I just I adore that his portrayal of him because it is. I, I don't know. I I read it very possible to view him as as really just a good guy trying his best, but falling into you know his weakness that he is very open about, which I think is what, what throws me sometimes about his character. So he's yeah. very much open about, no, I'm, I'm not bold. I'm very afraid and very scared and, and weak. No, I, I, I love that. I love that uh, about that character. And Jonathan Price is just amazing. There's mm. absolutely no question about that. I have a question. Mm. Hodor. Hodor, mm-hmm. Hodor, Hodor, Hodor. Also, Hodor. Hodor, Hodor, but Hodor, Hodor. <laughs> so, Hodor, Hodor, deterministic Hodor? In other words, <laughs> if 
Hodor, and as, as you guys were pointing out in your notes about the expressions and, and the way that Christian Narn was expressing the whole Hodor thing, and when Bran was talking to him about this, um, I went back and rewatched that scene, and I was kind of like, wow, that really does seem very tragic, like he's remembering something that happened to him. So right. it's obviously already happened to him, which means that Everything in this whole sequence of Bran's life has been leading up to what will happen in the fifth episode, right? So that means that everything in Hodor's life has, from that moment on, that happens at the end of season five, or episode five, it has, his whole life has been deterministic, which means that Bran's whole life has been deterministic, which means that I have to question is the universe that George has created a deterministic universe, not one of free will, not one of choice, one where events will happen the way they're supposed to happen no matter what? <laughs> I, I have a, a... So I watch a lot of like YouTube videos about like time travel and what kinds of time travel exist in this show and what are the rules for time travel in this show and and I just viewed that as the rules for time travel in this show and that might even have been the whole purpose of Hodor and and Bran in this um the way that their stories played out is that it defines that green scene in this world does not create a parallel universe a new universe cannot change the past but it has happened therefore the future you going back will always have to do that so it's it's deterministic time travel. It's not necessarily deterministic universe. It's <laughs> how I interpreted that. It's a, it's okay. Like, it's like a fixed point, like in the Doctor Who, I guess, world of like when things that can't change. Is that what you're saying, Kelly? Mm -hmm. Yep. Point in time and no TARDIS can come in and save the day. Okay. And, and I would agree with you, except for the fact that there is another element to this and that is the future or something that both Daenerys and Bran have seen and that is the throne room with the roof wide open and snow falling into it two different characters have seen the exact same thing does that make you feel like it's more deterministic as a universe it's possible but we haven't seen it so it hasn't been like canonized you know defined yet so I don't know if it does then yes like 100% like we haven't seen any like prophecies like come true for like um scene by scene kind of a thing. Like we've seen like somebody fulfill a prophecy because they were they knew of it, but not something that they couldn't. I don't know. That's hard to say. Yeah, that is really hard to say because uh, we don't know. And even Mel is like Mel's kind of the only one that we can sort of track with it. And 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 we and it's it's a lot of that is just her mistaking the visions. Um, and even with Cersei. You know, uh, the prophecy is we, we wouldn't even have Marcella in Dorne at all to begin with if it wasn't for Pycelle. So I don't I don't know if you, I don't I don't know if I'm making sense. But now, doesn't, but doesn't that make it seem even that much more deterministic that a Pycelle would have to do that in order to make that happen? Tyrion would have to be in that position where he would have to give that particular story to Pycelle. What if Tyrion in the moment decided to tell Littlefinger that he was sending Marcella to Dorne instead of to the Eyrie or or Varys rather because just because of 
I guess the nature of Littlefinger and, and the relationship with Lysa Aaron. But like, what if he just said the wrong one? You know, like, I don't know. I don't know. This is where it gets <laughs> wibbly wobbly. Tiny wimey. <laughs> Yeah, wibbly wobbly, timely wimey. All right, well that was that was my big big question. Uh, what else do we have here in terms of questions? Last night we got on a little spiel about Mel and how old she is, um, and we don't have to de- debate that. Spend more time debating it, but just off the top of your head, like who do you think is older, Mel or the Three Eyed Raven? Ooh. The show Three-Eyed Raven? I would probably say Mel. I, I would oh, almost no, no, no. go the other uh, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I meant I, the other way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I would think that the show Three-Eyed Raven is older than Mel. Yes. I think the book Three-Eyed Raven, uh, well, we know who that is, and that's a whole different story. And yet to be determined. We'd have, we'll have to wait on the books for that. Yeah, but yeah, no, 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 that's what I meant. Sorry, I said that wrong. But the, yeah. Yeah, for sure, the the, the three eyed raven. Um, so maybe it could be like compromised because like the three eyed raven is a man, but it's also a title. So maybe the the man that is in the tree is not as old as the three eyed raven, which is his title. I don't know. Oh, now you're getting all technical and stuff. What do you think, Holly? I don't know. It was just fun to, to think about. Um, and I kind of, I guess I agree that um, he's, that Mel is not older than Blood Raven or yeah, that she is probably older than Blood Raven. But I don't know. I'm thinking about what the Three-Eyed Raven in the show has said and that he's been there for thousands of years, but maybe he just means he's like watched thousands of years and, and that's what he means by that. So he's not necessarily yeah. thousands of years old, but he has lived a thousands of years of life by watching. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it, it's tough to decide. That's a great question to have. Um, I think but, the, the implications of either one are very interesting too. Like if Mel is older than three Ed Raven, does that mean her power is stronger or is his and that kind of, those kinds of like follow-up questions. <laughs> yeah. Mm, very good. Very good. Very good. <laughs> I, I have another question. Hmm. Can anyone come back as a white? Because why do we need to burn John's body? Why do we need to burn Maester Eamon's body? Why do we need to burn Ygritte's body if any, you know, if they weren't necessary? I th- I can't remember where I heard this. Somebody said it, and somebody said it very definitively, that you have to be killed by a white or a white walker in order to be brought back by the Night King or something to that effect. And I'm sitting here going, well, then why do you need to burn Jon Snow? Why do you need to burn Eamon? Why do you need to burn Egret? Is this just because the people who are doing the burning don't know any different? Or is there some reason? I mean, wouldn't it be cool to see, uh, you know, Sean Bean come back in season eight, running out of somewhere uh, as a zombie trying to kill Jon Snow? I I think whoever said that, where you heard that information from is wrong. Because even back in season two, when... John meets Egret for the first time and he kills some of the other um, uh, wildlings that are with her. She's like, you need to burn those bodies, by the way. And um, she wouldn't have said that if she wasn't worried because they weren't killed by White Walkers or Whites. Does that make sense? Yes, I agree with you completely. I, yeah. and I, I wish I could, I wish I could uh, you know, 
put point a finger at whoever it was that I heard say that, but I was just like, I want to definitively <laughs> let this everybody who listens to this podcast know we do not condone that thought. We think <laughs> that anyone can come back as a white, and we're madly awaiting Richard Madden's return. Oh with, with, well, but you won't recognize him because he'll have a wolf on his head. So they don't even they don't even have to ask. They don't even have to, you know, ask the actor to come back. They can just, you know, do what they do. They don't even have the CGI in the budget for, for for real wolves. I don't know about the man wolf CGI budget. Well, no, you just put a you just put a wolf uh, the same way that they did in season three. It's just this thing that looks completely ridiculous on the top of uh, of top of some stunt double. And there you go. Probably. You could. That's horrible, but... (laughs) Matt, I'm really worried that we're going to get an undead summer coming back because just because you said the wolf on the head and I was like, oh, crap. And then, and also Hodor, those would be like really tragic ones for me to see come back as whites. Hodor would be absolutely heartbreaking. That would be really tough. That's too far. Too far, writers. That's still, that is like the most tragic moment for me in this whole series is Hodor. I'm still not over it. And I'm, I will just die all over again if that happens. And I'm sure they'll do it because, man, the emotions from that are just too much. It's, um, that is George R. R. Martin style. I agree that they might go that route. But but no, I think the rule is um, anyone who dies north of the wall is um, susceptible to coming back as a white. Do you think that's true now that the wall has come down? That? I don't know. I think not. I think it's his army. It's his... His magic, the the Night King magical, um, you know, mists and snows and all of that is kind of the visual indication of the extent of his magic. And and once it couldn't, it couldn't go past the wall. But now that it's down, obviously, I think, and everyone's afraid that okay. everyone that he kills on his war path to the south will become part of his army. So I think it's reasonable to say that anyone he kills, uh, anyone who dies in that mist, in the, you know, within the extents of his powers range would come back. Okay, I disagree. Why would Maester Aemon need to be burned at the time the wall was still up and secure? Why would any of the men who were uh, died during the battle at the wall with, with the wildlings, why would they mm-hmm. need to be burned as they were? I think it's just a tradition at that point, like habit, a risk that he might get through and you can't rely on the wall to hold, you know, that... Um, magic back all the time so you just practice that practice i don't know i like to think they burn at the wall just because the ground is too frozen to bury people anyway um holly you're so smart uh follow up to like your question (laughs) that is like when the night king like gets to winterfell is he gonna raise all of the old kings of winter that are buried under in the in the crypts but they're just i guess they could be bones i know i was thinking oh no we're gonna get more (laughs) Yes, yes, we're going to get more Pirates of the Caribbean Whites. Um. Oh, maybe, yeah. yeah. Well, see, and that all ties right into that whole crypt teaser that HBO put out with uh, the cold coming in down on the crypts as as John and and Sansa and and Arya are in the crypts, and I love it. That was for that question, too, um, for me. I had I was already thinking there, so yeah. Let's dig it. Um, my last question. 
uh, if it's up for debate or question or just to ponder, uh, how, how do you think John was resurrected? I know we kind of paused this question earlier for the, the question section. Yes. Was it Melisandre? Was it Ghost? Was it the Lord of Light? Well, I think that all of it somehow has to be attributed to the magic associated with the Lord of Light. I'm not sure that I believe that there is a Lord of Light, but I do believe that there is a magic associated with that. What I will say is this. Uh, in terms of the ceremony itself, that part was worthless as far as my interpretation went. What made it happen was Melisandre's genuine asking please at the end. And it took a moment, but it was that moment of vulnerability that we've always seen the magic that is associated with the Lord of Light happen. That's what happened with Beric. Uh, more or less, Thoros was asking, please bring back my friend, or please save my friend, or maybe not even that, just please give my friend peace. We're not still exactly sure what it was that Thoros asked for. As far as, uh, as far as the hound went with the being able to see in the flames, it was his, his most vulnerable moment where he didn't know, you know, he gave up his tough scale and started to say things over the seven, but then he saw something in the flames. There's something about the magic of self-doubt that totally uh, creates magical things. It's essentially George R. R. Martin's version of the Ucat catastrophe that J.R.R. Tolkien was so great at. To me, anyway, that's what mm -hmm. that's about. Yeah, it's it's a writer's way of indicating like the power of human emotion and and how like when all hope is lost, there is a still deep down hope in the human heart that has power and therefore is able to, when all other emotions are stripped away and that's all that's left, there is power in that hope. And it's a very artistic narrative device. <laughs> well, and in, in this case, and, and I even believe like in J.R. or Tolkien's uh, version, I mean, what essentially happens to Gollum? He just kind of trips up, right? Um, it's, in, it's, in, it's in the most desperate moment that the most odd thing happens to change things completely. And that's exactly what happened here with Jon Snow. So you don't think there was, I don't know, a warg in Ghost who imbued some power once everyone was gone into Jon and woke him up? <laughs> Not given the way the television show has treated warging. Of yes, course. Or yeah. dire wolves, for that mm -hmm. matter. So. You don't think a future brand found some channel back to his dead half-brother cousin and said and you are you, you are needed <laughs> as you both know i am the biggest fan in the world of saying brand brand everywhere <laughs> but not necessarily in this case i liked that thought that i was trying to think like what was the point of ghost was he he was just like a a magical like alarm clock basically. <laughs> like I, I, I love that. When you brought that up in the last episode, I thought that's exactly what he is. Yeah. yeah okay. For the show. I, I, yeah, for the show. I, I really think in the books it's going to hopefully be different. But yeah, I, I do like I like the alarm clock analogy. 
was really, I think, I think they just kind of got in, I guess they just got in over their head with what they were going to do with the dire wolves. And, um, it was nice that they had them there. At least I appreciate that. Um, speaking of ghosts, this is probably the last time we'll see him. Um, he might be in the background when Sansa gets to the wall, but other than that, we're really not going to see much more of him. And, and ever again until because um, he's not when a, he gets when that, he gets ripped apart by whites yeah shut up Matt you stop mm-mm, it mm-mm. say these things <laughs> Matt you're fired <laughs> I am fired totally I'm firing myself for that one <laughs> those are my questions thank you for indulging <laughs> right on let's move on to tidbits tidbits and so tidbits are the smaller points of the episode or stuff that we haven't brought up yet, stuff that we feel needs to still be talked about, but we haven't addressed yet. And one of the things that we haven't talked about at all is Arya in this episode. I want to talk a little bit about Arya. She's coming back to the House of the Black and White now. And I don't really have that much to say about it, except that it is a pretty faithful decision that Arya makes here in terms of it does eventually give her more skills with which to be able to do what she does in season seven. The thing that really got me about it was Maisie Williams. I think, Kelly, in the last episode, you brought up the whole thing about the contacts and what all. And I, I always think that an actor probably uses their eyes most when they're acting. But when um, when the friendly man or Jack and Hagar or whatever you want to call him is asking her those questions, you know, if a girl will say her name, I'll give her... You know, she can come back and finish her training or or what have you. And Maisie just killed it with the way that Arya was reacting to that. The the whole hesitancy and 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 then the resilience to say that she still still say that she's no one, willing to give up anything for that name. And I I loved that test. And while it it seems like that she's really giving up on it you would think that she would have to give she's saying that she's giving up on her list and all of that stuff the pain of that and maybe she's still thinking in her mind you know i can still once i get through all of this i can still do what i need to do because she is still holding on the needle it's still hidden away but i i just absolutely loved seeing the tribulation that that caused Arya in that moment. I thought it was a huge moment for Arya. Yeah, it definitely, I think, taught her, like, uh, gave her quite a bit of time to consider, like, taking vision for granted in in her life and, like, in her fighting and using it as a tool and and having it taken away teaches her to use all of its other things as tools in her arsenal. And it's, it's a learning moment, but it's also, yeah, like, she kind of almost was willing to give up her eyes forever to be able to accomplish her goals that she wants i don't know i kind of viewed it the other way like she wasn't giving up her list like she was giving up her eyes in order to achieve the skills that she needs to complete her list <laughs> I like that a lot uh what do, what do you have uh kelly uh just a little bit in the the first uh question uh cersei asks tommen when he comes in is um, did they dress Marcella in the red or the gold? And just very subtle that, you know, it did fulfill the prophecy, at least in her mind, one more degree that uh, they did dress Marcella in the gold and her kind of, hmm, that always did look good on her, kind of a 
plays it off like that was of no concern to her such that I did not catch it until this time I was watching it. I was like, gold, her shroud. (laughs) Uh, How about you, Holly? What do you got? Um, I guess while we're hanging out in King's Landing, uh, Jamie Lannister is somehow the only body that can only person that confess some crimes to the High Sparrow and nothing happens to him. They didn't really try to arrest him for murdering his cousin and um, I know he doesn't outright say, you know, his crimes with Cersei, but I think at this point, it's already, you know, the High Sparrow already has his suspicions. And if he really wanted to, it seems like he could have. He could have arrested uh, Jamie, but he doesn't. I thought that was interesting. I did, too. And I love the way that Jamie was posing those kind of questions, like, do what sins do I have to atone for? I stabbed my king and what have you. Um, it reminded me a lot of the Catelyn conversation that he had back in season two about which oaths do you hold up or which oaths do you let down in order to hold up other oaths? Which ones are more important? Um, it, it would seem very similar to me in to terms of those two conversations, uh, just on a conceptual level as, as to where Jamie feels where justice is or, or what is right or what is wrong. I, I love that. Mm-hmm. Oh. And, you know, he, he could be throwing the High Sparrow's hypocrisy in his face and just kind of making him hear it and recognize that the only reason he's arresting Marjorie and Cersei and putting them through this is because they have this position of power that he is trying to exploit. And because Jamie doesn't have that position of power to that degree, he's he's not worth or the effort that it would take to, you know, make him a prisoner and, and to use him the way that they're, he was using the, the other two. Um, just definitely like highlighting the hypocrisy of the sparrows. Right on. Cool. Brilliant. White male pl- privilege and Kingsley. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. But I mean, it's almost the opposite. It's like, because the women, the, you know, Marjorie and Cersei have a higher rank and more control and more power. They were m- more valuable targets, you know? Mm-hmm. But because they are women, they do have more, uh, you know, exploitable character flaws that society can get behind their, like, moral indignation. Mm. What else do we have on the tidbits? Anybody? Uh, my only other... Oh, I'll just throw my last one out there because it was the... We talked about it earlier. It was the, the Five Kings War is over, and that's with Renly, Rob, Joffrey, Stannis, and now Balin are dead. But we didn't mention that the uh, the three usurpers that Stannis um, had Mel use the uh, blood magic with the leeches on Gendry for. Uh, he, uh, Balin was the third leech in, in those, uh, in that little blood magic. So kind of interesting how in this episode, you know, if if any of that was due to her power, it was highlighted in that she was very powerful. If she was the one who resurrected uh, John, it's two, two scores for <laughs> Melisandre in this episode. Love that. Uh, I'll, I'll say this. I want to go back to the flashback that Bran had. And I, I didn't catch this the first time I watched this episode. I only caught it this time around. And I'm sure lots of people have already caught it. But uh, forgive me for being behind. But Ned says to uh, his, to Benjen when he's training him, he says, "Keep your sh- get your shield up or I'll ring your head like a bell. And I was just like, wow, didn't John just say that to Ollie? in the last season when he was training him. Yes. And it was adorable and heartbreaking. 
Yes, I know, but it's just it's just it's like those kind of words. It's like you know now that Ned took the time to personally train John in swordsmanship at some point, because those words wouldn't have been in John's head to say to Ollie <laughs> if he hadn't heard them from Ned. And it was just one of those moments where I was just like, wow, I just love that, how Ned is still, his words are still coming through even now. Yeah, their connection, you know, that they they both, maybe, the, yeah, because uh, Sir Roderick, I think, trained John, and I think Sir Roderick was there with the with the mutton chops <laughs> training the boys, uh, Ned and Benjamin. So whether it was the fact that that's how Sir Roderick trained Ned, and then that's how Ned trained with John, or it's also how Sir Roderick trained, trained John. It's just this connection that keeps, um, that plays out um, the similarity between Ned and John, which, especially in this episode, stark contrast, no pun intended, I'm so sorry, um, between Roos and Ramsey, like just this, uh, how you can be connected and, and uh, what kind of a relationship you can have with your bastard son, and how, like, leagues apart they are between these these two characters these four characters you know and that that bond between john and ned being highlighted here subtly <laughs> very good love it uh holly how about you what do you got i for me I, and thank you kelly for putting in your notes here and your research for me to help me answer this question but um this season is where i start having a really hard time distinguishing between Viserion and Rhaegal. i think they like just CGI wise, they they're a lot brighter in the earlier seasons, and then they kind of give them this more, uh, to me, more kind of natural look. And but for me, it makes it harder for me to tell them apart. Um, so especially in this first scene where it's already dark in there, and I think I did know which one was which, but uh, it's it's one of those things where every time I'm looking at them, I'm pretty sure I know which one, but I always second guess myself because um, they definitely you know, sort of changed the way they designed them, or at least their, their color scheme is a little bit different now. So, especially when yeah. they're playing. They're, yeah, they're, they're different every time we see them. Yeah. <laughs> hard, but uh, it was something I've just kind of noticed while doing all of these rewatches for recording these podcasts. Like, even in the last season, when they're going into the crypts, they're very, it's very distinguishable. Like, Viserion is, like, cream and gold and Rhaegal is green. Now they almost look kind of like the same color uh, most of the time. And it's, I wonder if that's, if, <laughs> if they're just even getting lazier with the dragons, like, Oh look, they're very detailed, but I'm not going to, we're not going to waste our time coloring them anymore. We're just going to put them like flying off in the distance where it doesn't really matter anyway. And then even thinking ahead, I knew it was Viserion. That is the one that the night King is going to take out, but north of the wall with that where everything is just blue and all of those scenes anyway it's it's hard to tell up there too you know i I was again second guessing myself so interesting yeah i don't know i was just wondering if maybe anybody else out there also had a hard time distinguishing between those two dragons even though you we know what they're supposed to look like right well for me i mean there's drogon and then there's everybody else yeah uh but i do seem to recall that in the Battle of the Bastards in this particular season, uh, when they finally break out of wherever it is that they are and join her, Danny and Drogon, um, that their colors become more distinguishable in that particular episode. But uh, like you said, moving on into season seven, 
um, yeah, it becomes again a little bit blurred because they're kind of usually more in the background. Although, uh, Viserra, Viserion's death moment, I thought, distinguished him pretty well. <laughs> yeah. I, I think a couple of thoughts. They're in a, yeah, like you said that they're down in a dark cave and, and it's lit by firelight. And I know from experience, like a lot of things just kind of become very, um, yeah like you don't know the color uh, as clearly when it's all just lit by firelight so um that may have been a design misstep because we can't tell the difference between them and we see them so infrequently that to basically have like a copy paste of two dragons down there really detracts from their individuality and they're just her dragons and i think it was kind of horrible how far we went into the show without knowing what their names were (laughs) it's just it's just kind of a carryover of, of the, the lack of attention that they give to, to these dragons, um, their individual uh, characteristics and stuff. So they could have like, you know, given their eyes like a glimmer of the color or something to distinguish them between each other. Um, that would have been nice. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. 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 See, now Holly is all about we don't use the direwolves enough. And now Kelly is like, well, you we don't see the dragons enough. You can oh, tell yeah. who likes what. <laughs> Always. <laughs> I'm sorry. They do use the dragons plenty. Um, but yeah, but I can I can complain about I can complain about the dragons too if I want to. I like them. I just don't <laughs> the dogs more. Yeah. Like I said, for me it's Drogon and everybody else. Who cares? They're just dragons. And you are a product of the way the show has treated the dragons, Matt. <laughs> I absolutely I absolutely am. But even in the books, I'm kinda like, Oh, there's Drogon and then there's everybody else. <laughs> it's kind of true. Anything? You didn't feel anything in that episode beyond the wall when that happened? Like, because I mean, I definitely felt things, but like, it was it was horrible. It was awful. That was no big deal to you. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it wasn't a big deal. I was just kind of, but it was more on the respect of, holy crap, the Night King just killed a dragon. But I wasn't really particularly cared about which what the right. dragon's name was. You were like, oh no, was that Drogon? Oh no, it wasn't. It was one of the other ones. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, I think it had to have been Viserion. I think I, I would have been more upset if it was Rhaegal. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe just because we want Jon to ride the dragon named for his father. You know, maybe all of that. But... I don't know. I think it does matter which one died. Well, and I think it's more. I think it's more than thematically fitting that the dragon that is named after her brother right. is the one that is working for the bad side now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Narratively, absolutely, it's important that which one was was killed, but you know, poetically and, and all that. But I think the way that it came across in the show, it, they did not spend enough time building up the individual you know nature of the two different dragons so by the time it happened i'm sure most people were just like i don't know which one that was but it wasn't but it wasn't drogon (laughs) oh what else have we got on tidbits (laughs) um i have uh the eye the very famous very 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 famous i drink and i know things line uh come out in this episode um i'm not a super fan of this line and but i do have it on some socks um, I just remember when I went to the Game of Thrones live concert experience, I drove to Houston for it. And that was the shirt that 75% of the crowd was wearing. Um, but yeah, yeah. So there's that. Well, I was, I was going to comment on that too. And it's like, how many t-shirts have we all seen with that on it? So many. Um, but yeah, it is insane. But 
the the thing that I loved most about the whole sequence was just Tyrion with the dragons. I thought that it was uh, a little scary. It was beautiful. It was funny. Um, and just Tyrion knowing about dragons and all of that. And, I, and we got a little bit of that in season five when he saw Drogon, who was flying away as fast as he could from Daenerys when, sure, yeah. when, when, when Tyrion was debatable. flying away as fast yeah. as he could from Daenerys and That's Tyrion first saw him. We understood. That was a book nod to it. people who knows about, <laughs> about right, Tyrion uh, and his fascination with dragons. But here it was explained <laughs> why he was looking at Drogon that way in season five when Drogon was flying away from Daenerys as fast as he possibly he's could. He's going to help her. He just doesn't necessarily Tyr- Tyr- away. He was headed in the opposite direction, baby. <laughs> he was like, I'm out of here. She I'm don't just, know I mean, who she is. He, he, he came back. He, he, he took <laughs> a big lap. He took a big lap. He needed time for Daenerys to find herself. And he was just like, I don't want anywhere around here. That's what he was doing. Just, anyway, he, Tyrion. So he came back. <laughs> Tyrion's expression, uh, other than just, you know, all the awe of seeing a dragon, I think it's so beautifully explained in his little speech to oh, pick a dragon name, because since we don't know which one he was speaking to when he first started talking. But either way, Tyrion, I, I just love that story. And it's a great book reader nod um, to Tyrion's fascination with dragons in the books, which is much more present um, than it is in the or has been in the television show for the most part. Absolutely. No. And, and I did adore the, the line in the moment, but of course the, the like masses overtaking the, the usage of that word and or of that phrase, I drink and I know things and, and making that their epitome of their understanding of Tyrion, I think diminished his character a little bit. So it did kind of get a little soured, <laughs> but no, we did get a lot of great Tyrion moments in this episode. And I, and I thought that at the time that was one of them. And I also thought it was a lot of like more of that humor because we're like getting away from the books a bit that we had and i like that scene a little bit it was kind of awkward but it was good <laughs> Tyrion talking in a room filled with eunuchs and women about male genitalia was just a flat line <laughs> yeah he's he's definitely struggling and with his jokes um and marine he's he his comedy routine does not work there um not the right culture fit for him, but yeah, it is really, I agree with Matt. You, uh, it's great to hear, you know, Tyrion actually know some things about some dragons, which we know, you know, is true for him the whole time, but this is apparently really one of the first times he's really talking about it. So it's nice. And, and we talked about it last season, Matt, when we were talking about when, when Barristan died and how that was like uh, Danny's last connection with somebody who knew anything about dragons and, and the Targaryen family. And now you get this like scholar who's now available to her who knows things. So it's kind of a nice, uh, you know, not perfect replacement, but <laughs> as far as academia is, re- is required of her, it's a good, uh, he, he shows himself to be useful. Yeah. I think the thing that I find funniest about, uh, like you said, with the humor is, uh, is, is Tyrion failing at yeah. humor. That, that, that's, that's what, that's, that's the joke. You know, the, the rest of it, the, the rest of it, he is pretty lame as yeah. far as if you were a Masande or if you were a Grey Worm or what have you. Um, especially with the drinking games that he does later. Uh, but it, it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I found that stuff kind of funny. The fact that he's just not funny. Not, 
funny being funny. <laughs> what else? Anything else on tidbits, guys? What do we got left? Still staying on this Tyrion thing. Right before he's asking Missandei, like, oh, the dragons know you? He's like, so... It kind of, it just kind of implied that he was gonna bring Masande down into those catacombs with her, but he doesn't. So I was that I just thought that was really brave because right before he's like, "Oh, they know you, right?" and she's like, "Yeah, of course they know me." But then he doesn't take her with them to go and see them. I thought that was weird. I don't know. Did that? Did y'all get that implication that that's what he was asking? Was like, "Hey." These dragons aren't going to, like, eat me if you're next to me, right? <laughs> yeah. I think he wanted to prove a point. So it was, let me just verify that if they know you, they won't eat you, right? Okay, I, I better go get to know them. And, okay, yeah, it was I a just, little bit. <laughs> I, so my thinking is if, like, I'm going to I'm gonna go with somebody you know, so you right. have to eat me immediately because that's your friend and, you know the friend's going to make introductions or whatever. No, it, it was specifically set up so that we would fear for Tyrion, especially as book readers who had read the whole Quentin Martell thing. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, but were you really afraid for Tyrion? <laughs> I'm always afraid tense. for Tyrion. Yeah, it was, it was a it, little tense. <laughs> it was tense. I, I don't know. I guess a lot of those things they try to do for show only watchers don't always land super well with me, but I appreciate it. I, I understand that. Folks, that this concludes all of the little bits and all of the big things and all of the surfacey things. It's time to get to playing our game show segments. Three words and brothel mates. Three words is next. Three words describing the episode in three words. Three little words. Oh, what I'd give for that wonderful phrase to hear those three little words. Three words. This is where you describe the episode in three words. That kind of where the title comes from. Three words. Not a hard game to play, or sometimes a very hard game to play. It depends on how you want to approach it. If you want to do the entire episode in three words, that can be difficult sometimes. If you want to take just your favorite scene, or something that you feel like you can be funny with, and probably won't be funny. Well, if it's my case, you won't be funny. You all will be funny. Send your emails with your three-word suggestions for any of these episodes by March 5th, 2019. Game of Thrones will just be a little over a month of away then, a month away, and we will read your three-word submissions for each episode during that feedback podcast which follows after that deadline. You submit emails via Matt's audio blog at gmail.com. Matt's audio blog at gmail.com. M-A-T-T-S audio blog at gmail.com. Or you tweet to Matt's G-O-T blog on Twitter. Matt's G-O-T blog on Twitter. M-A-T-T-S G-O-T blog on Twitter. I keep figuring that it maybe if I just say it over and over and over, you'll think that you'll be able to shut me up if you just send me something. I would love to hear your three words. <laughs> I would also love for you to look at the show notes and see who's playing music in this episode. I have music at the beginning. I have music at the end. I have music in the middle. I have music underneath this segment if you're listening on a podcast app. Not if you're listening on YouTube. You don't get the good stuff when you're on YouTube. But you can look at the show notes from the podcast app and see who's playing music underneath us right now if you're listening on a podcast app. And I would appreciate it if you did so. Because the only way musicians ever get to take their immortality with them after they go, is if people remember who they are. 
The record company, of course, always remembers musicians who sell lots of records for them, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they become famous. Let's face it, Mozart didn't have a CD contract, but somehow somebody said, oh, that Mozart guy, he writes pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And finally, somebody said, yeah, there's enough of us here. Maybe we should find the stuff that he wrote and take it someplace else and let somebody else play it. Oh, yeah, we should do that. And then more people said, oh, that was a great piece of music. Who wrote that piece of music? And the conductor said, well, Mozart. And now, 300 some odd years later, we have some wonderful Bach, Mozart, and Beethoven for you to listen to still. Only because people remembered who they were. Remember who the people are. You don't have to buy their stuff. You don't have to click on their links. Just remember who they are. That's the way that these musicians will stay immortal forever. With that, let's get into our three words. Kelly, what have you got? <laughs> uh, I liked very much the scene with uh, Brienne and Sansa and the moment when Sansa is acknowledging that she should have gone with her. And instead of being like, yeah, maybe you should have, whatever, Brienne just says, we all have to make difficult choices. And I think that played out for everybody in the show. So I think my three little words are to are just make difficult choices. <laughs> that is an excellent three words. How about you, Holly? What you got? My three words are beware of walls. I can't believe we haven't touched on this even a <laughs> little bit. But man, we have two great, awesome moments of people getting smashed into walls. One by my favorite, one one the giant, and one by the mountain, and basically the the very next scene, and it's. They're both great moments. I love those things. They're, and they were funny both times, even though they were violent and horrible deaths for those people involved. They were kind of hilarious. I, I love that, too. It's That one's a hard one to top, and mine will not top it. But it will go off on a completely different to- uh, subject. Uh, and this is one aimed at those crazy crackpot book readers. Mr. Dave Hill decided to let you know, not a vampire. No, everybody thinks that Roose Bolton in the books is some kind of crazy vampire. Well, the crazy crackpot theorists think that Roose Bolton is a vampire. I've never believed that Roose Bolton is a vampire, despite the whole leeching thing that he does in the books and everything. It's never been present in the TV show. And now he dies without even getting a complete stake to the heart. So uh, <laughs> he, he bleeds even. And so therefore he could not possibly be a Twilight vampire. He could be an actual vampire still, but I'm I'm going by the Twilight version, and he is not a vampire. <laughs> That's what I say. Those are my three words. Our brothel baits, the best coupling of the episode, is next. Mates, the best coupling of the episode. L is for the way you look at me. O is for the only one I see. V is very, very extraordinary. E is even more than anyone that you adore can love. 
best coupling of the episode. We call them brothel mates. Does not have to be two people. It can be a person and a concept, a person and an emotion, a person and an object. I don't care what you pair up. Just make sure that it's probably, I mean, an object and an object is not very romantic. Let's try and keep it a little bit romantic. Holly, what you got for us? Okay, my brothel mates of the week this week are, um, it's a couple that we hadn't seen together in a long time and we'll never see together again. And it is Hodor uh, slash Willis and Old Nan from when they were young. Aww. That's very good. Oh my that's god, awesome. that's so good. We, you know, we didn't really even mention Old Nan. I, I keep wondering... At what point did she start telling the stories about ice spiders? <laughs> well, she's obviously were, like were, not, were those not, stories... not so old, old man yet. <laughs> so... Well, I mean, did, did she, as she was raising Willis, did she tell him those stories to scare the bejesus out of her own son? I imagine so. She's a good mother. And I think she... <laughs> Save those stories for the Lordlings. Like, she was very protective of Willis. She might not have told him those... <laughs> Oh, that's yeah. true. That's true. Know. He seemed like I don't know. I think she might have told him that. Maybe not after the I don't know. There's before incident. Yeah, the incident before the time before Hodor and the time after Hodor. Yeah, uh, there, there's <laughs> there's T B H and T A H in our timeline. <laughs> All right, I will go next. Mine is Melisandre and Faith. And you have to wonder, no fury like a woman scorned. She was absolutely incredible in this episode. She was so lost without her faith. She was totally distraught without her Lord of Light faith. And even at the end, she was still distraught with her begging the, her faith, her 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 master, the Lord of Light, to come back and do something good. She needed her faith. And, of course, after she walked away, as a man typically does, the faith came back. <laughs> uh, you know, too late, saying, Oh, but, but baby, I do love you. I do love you. Uh, too late. Yeah, I've walked out of the room. <laughs> That's that's what happens <laughs> with with uh, with the the guys who just don't get it in time. Kelly, you are the queen of the brothel mates. What do you got for us? Oh, uh, well, I'm mildly horrified that you emphasize the romantic aspect of this of this uh, segment because mine is distinctly not romantic, uh, but it sets the seed for uh, beautiful beautiful. Oh, she used the later. word seed. Look it out, does. folks! It uh, does. <laughs> But it is horrible. So in this scene, of course, I was talking previously about how um, the Bruce's uh, behavior, he got his comeuppance in this episode in a very dramatic and poetic way for how it played out. Uh, I think how we see Ramsey at his, this is, I mean, he's got very deep levels of worst, but this is one of his deepest levels in this episode when he kills his stepmom and, and half-brother. And he does it with this hounds in this exact kennel that we see later. And just now I wanted him to uh, enjoy that moment because he will be in this exact position with the tables turned uh, in not too long of a future. So uh, Ramsey and his hounds and how he loves them and has trained them <laughs> are my brothel mates this week. 
Ladies and gentlemen, as a disclaimer, Kelly is not suggesting bestiality in any oh, way, shape, or form. Oh my god! <laughs> no, actually, I like I like that you said that because it kind of goes back to my earlier point when I was saying that Bruce did a bad job of raising his pup, and Ramsey is actually a very good dog owner, except that time when he starved them to get them ready to eat John, because that was bad for him. But otherwise, they were very well disciplined dogs. Like they didn't come out of those kennels. Until he whistled, I know it was like horrifying and impressive, and I just, I was glued to the screen watching that because I'm I'm very impressed by good dog owners, and I was I I hated having admiration for this guy, so it was just I was all over the place in this episode in the scene. <laughs> I agree with you 100. <laughs> percent Time for the musical analysis of this episode, where we're going to talk about. Uh, two great versions of the Ironborn theme and two fantastic versions of the Lord of Light theme. That's next. Doing love can make it. Take my heart and please don't break it. Love was made for me and you. For me and you. The music on Game of Thrones. You're not coming with us? I would have taken you all the way to the wall. a really lovely scene between Sansa and Theon who you know it doesn't seem like they would have ever really gotten along when they were younger but now that Sansa has experienced what she's experienced she's savoring anything that can be close to her and of course Theon did save her life but my main focus here is the Greyjoy theme and how this particular thing represents Theon's beginning road towards redemption By the time we get to the end of season seven, when Theon's kneeling at the beach, we get practically just a complete major chord version of the Greyjoy theme, of Theon and Yara's theme, so to speak. And it is absolutely beautiful uh, in the way that it redeems Theon completely, at least musically. But those seeds are planted right here in this theme that first phrase starts to add major harmony to the theme itself, like this. Just by changing the bass note underneath that last note, Ramin has now embedded in our minds that this can resolve to somewhere major as opposed to just minor. Minor makes us feel sad or scared. Major makes us feel happy or sometimes even sweetly sad, as in this case, but hopeful. And that's what that chord created. But what's best is that it leads up to 
this particular kind of resolution. Where it goes from here creates a major harmony in this sense. It's implying that we can actually go to where this would be the root of the key. And that, once again, is where we end up at the end of Season 7, when Theon's on his knees after saying, For Yara! We get a completely major-sounding version of the Theon theme, and it is spectacular in Season 7. But the seeds are right here. And it even continues into the second phrase as well, because that's where that new major harmony sits to begin the second phrase. And so when you resolve to the next chord after that, it doesn't seem nearly as minor as it normally does. You get a sound like this. Now what's interesting is the very first phrase that I played on the piano is actually repeated harmonically, anyway, when Balon is sent out to sea. But for some reason, it doesn't seem nearly as hopeful, does it? Well, the reason is, is the way that that chord is set up. We start by using just a static bass note underneath the melody that establishes it firmly like this. Same two phrases that we heard with Theon in terms of the melody, but because the harmony is static and sets up the minor key, then this phrase doesn't seem quite nearly as hopeful. It instead feels sinking because we've so firmly established that this next part is part of the minor key as opposed to leading to the major key, like this. And yeah, nobody really mourns for Balon, but it is that minor feeling returning to the roots of the way the melody was first established that creates that minor feeling that we have like when we first heard the Greyjoy theme, because we are home. We're back in the Iron Islands, and we're sending Balon off to sea to feed the fish. Here's the scene. Take your servant Balon back beneath the waves. Swear it by the salt throne. The salt throne is not yours to swear upon. And so that's two distinct versions of the Greyjoy theme using very different approaches, using the same melody that generate two totally different feelings in a lot of ways. And it's interesting to hear how Theon's version of the theme develops 
as his, I guess, his heroism returns to him in a lot of ways. But moving on from the Greyjoy theme, we still have two versions of the Lord of Light theme to talk about. And the first one is a masterpiece in a lot of ways in how it is using different kinds of dominant harmony and different kinds of sound and timbre to create this really creepy feeling when Melisandre's doing the ritual. Also, it creates kind of a hopeful feeling. It, it helps to feed our anticipation of seeing Jon Snow come back. And I love the way that he uses the harmony against the melody to help generate our excitement. We want it to resolve, and yet it doesn't. But more on that in a second. You'll remember the melody. The Lord of Light theme is this. And you don't need to know any of these terms, but the first thing that Ramin does in order to generate tension for us is to make the five the bass note. Instead of placing the main melody key, he chooses the five of that because, as I've discussed before, dominant or five always seems to want to resolve the one. It's just something that our brains tell us that we need to hear. And so he plays the melody over the dominant a lot in this particular scene, just like this. And by doing that, something in the back of our brains is wanting desperately to go to the main center of the key. But Ramin makes it stretch out even more by adding chords that seem like they're going to build up to the one. Chords like this. After you hear that, don't you just really want the next note to be this? That's that climbing up from five to one. It's something that every brain wants to hear in some way. We want to hear this kind of progression as those chords are going on. We want to hear these notes lead up to the one chord, so to speak. Really makes you want to get back to that one chord that I played earlier, right? But no, 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 no. Instead of continuing to climb up like I just played, instead, Ramin lets it sink back down again in this very bizarre way of using harmony that really creates even more tension. It's like, Melisandre's trying. Oh, it's not working. Melisandre's trying again. It's still not working. So we get chords like this. And that just drives you crazy. It rises, it's going to get there. No, wait, it falls. That's horrible. The, the way that Ramin tortures us with this really tense scene. It's amazing. And we continually, over all of this, we continually hear the main melody. But to make it even worse, he then climbs even closer except that he's playing the root at the same time that he's climbing. And so you get a true dissonance at the end, something where the notes are so close together, it's almost like fingers on a chalkboard. It's like, is he going to breathe or not? And what happens is he doesn't. But it ends 
on a real dissonance like this. Ah, just get there, right? Just get there. John, breathe. Suck in some air. Let Melisandre thing work. And it doesn't. It's so wonderful. It creates so much tension. That last please that Melisandre gives, that kind of dissonance is playing underneath her. And it's beautiful because it resolves out that way. It doesn't resolve, actually, is what happens. It never gets to the one. And so we're left feeling, is that it? Is that all? And we're left with moments of silence, just staring at a dead Jon Snow until he finally takes a breath. Now that I've described all of that so excitedly and said all of those parts, you probably want to hear what it sounds like when real musicians play it rather than just this old hack. Here's a scene of Melisandre's trying to revive Jon Snow. there we are we're stuck i love the timbre choices of that particular clip you've got those weird synthy sounds that imply magic you have the horn sounds that imply melisandre's fanaticism 
for the Lord of Light, or even SOE kind of thoughts about the Lord of Light. You have all of these dissonances to create tension for us psychologically. Everything comes together beautifully in that. It really works. It's not my favorite version of the theme, nor is the next one that the end credits end with when he does finally take a breath, but it's a masterful job of really using a single theme and just the harmony around it to create tension that we're not even aware of, we're feeling at the time. We're thinking that it's all coming from what we're seeing on the screen. It's not. It's what's coming in our ears. But there is that final end credits because we see Jon Snow finally breathing and all of a sudden we're like, what? It worked. And once again, as the credits are rolling off, we get that main theme once again, this one. Except this time it's in motion. It's got a lot of double timing in it. By double timing, I mean the melody is played twice as fast as what we're normally used to hearing it, like this. And if that isn't enough, as we're pondering what we just saw and wondering, wow, this is great, Jon Snow's alive. Will he be Jon Snow? Will he be something different than Jon Snow? There's even more tension. Uh, And we get to the very end of the clip and things are going quadruple time. Things are going four times as fast as what we're normally used to hearing. Like this. Wow, Ramin's mind is racing here. He's like, Jon Snow, what's he going to be like? What's he going to be like? What's he going to be like? And everything goes fast and fast and fast. And again, just like he did with the scene where Melisandre was trying to revive him, he spends most of this end clip where the credits are going off using the pedal harmony to generate more and more tension. Again, pedal needs to go to one. That was the pedal tone, and it needs to go desperately to here. But it's really not until the very end that Ramin finally resolves to himself and to us that one chord that allows us to breathe easier. Jon Snow is alive. We still don't know whether he's good alive or bad alive, but Jon Snow is alive. Tune in next week. And with that, I'm going to leave you with those end credits sounds. Not my favorite version of the Lord of Light theme. Not the best version of the Lord of Light theme, but a masterful version nonetheless. And I'll be back with some closing thoughts with Kelly and Holly in just a moment.
once again, thanks for joining us. We had another long and exciting discussion about this particular episode. There's no way that I could ever know as much as these two girls know. I can't thank you guys enough for joining me for these two episodes. Both of you will be in future episodes for this season as well, but not together. And I'm already kind of missing that because it's always a lot of fun talking to both of you. (laughs) Kelly, if people want to talk to you about A Song of Ice and Fire, you are the siren of ice and fire from the West. How do they contact you or how do they talk to you about Game of Thrones? Probably the best way would be to send a message or a tweet to Matt and then he will let me know because <laughs> he has, he's got full direct contact uh, access. But other than that, uh, if you want to attempt, I, I give you my blessing. Uh, Kelly Underfoot on Twitter. And I check it most of the time during the seasons. So give it a go. I'm there for you. And I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll definitely talk your ear off about things, especially do- dragons, dogs, and um, GNC related. <laughs> Folks, I can guarantee you that Kelly will be very enthusiastic about talking to you because she's sick of talking to me about it all. <laughs> that is for sure. I'm the one that keeps poking her and saying, hey, come on the podcast. Come on the podcast. <laughs> and then she says, oh, okay, I guess. Oh, I'll do four episodes. That's kind of the way that goes. <laughs> At any rate, somebody else who I love talking to about this series is Holly. And Holly is the siren of A Song of Ice and Fire of the South. Holly. If people want to talk to you about Game of Thrones or Song of Ice and Fire, how can they contact you? Um, they can find me on Twitter at HuntPants. Um, it's weird. And, uh, yeah, uh, you can talk to me about Game of Thrones, Fire and Blood, or uh, Con of Thrones coming up this year where you can talk to me and Matt will be there. And Kelly is going to come, too, because we're going <laughs> to... Yes, we've just now twisted Kelly's arm on a podcast. There's no way she cannot come now. That is the way of things. That's the way Holly rolls, because it's weird. Folks, if you want to contact me, Matt's audioblog at gmail.com, Matt's GOT blog on Twitter. Wait a minute, what am I saying all this? Bubba is just about to tell you all that information. See you next time. Bye. listening to Matt's audio blog. Find all contact information, back episodes, and podcast app links at mattsaudioblog.com.